Gale's open, they're away in the Golden Slipper, there's a great start, and Mick Mitt Basque on the extreme outside is about the first out, Jeff Boyle. Yagler on the outside, lunging, but Catlin opening just in front, Jagler trying desperately, can't reach him. Catlin opening has lasted to win the Doncaster by a hit, the Jagler. This Iron podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Inglis. The Riverside Selling Auditorium will be buzzing on the 6th and 7th of April when the world-famous Inglis Easter Yearling Sale will capture the spotlight. 466 yearlings will be offered, including siblings to 161 stakes winners. The progeny of 169 stakes winning mares will go under the hammer, while the list of stallions represented over the two days will appease the hardest marker. Sentimentalists will pay particular attention to the final draft of the legendary Reduce Choice, who died at Arrowfield Stud in 2019. Speaking of Arrowfield, the famous stud tops the Vendor numbers with 49, ahead of Coolmore with 40, Widden with 28, Sedgenhoe 23 and Yarraman Park 22. Inglis Easter acquisitions in recent years include the Autumn Sun, Exceedance, Loving Gabby, Merchant Navy, Esther Jarb, Trapeze Artist, Russian Revolution and the Oaks winner, Personal. The countdown has begun for one of the world's greatest thoroughbred auctions, the 2021 Inglis Easter Sale. The 2021 Inglis Easter Yearling Sale is fast approaching, offering a catalogue described by the famous auction house as the best ever produced. Every one of the 466 lots will command attention on April 6 and 7. Eight of those yearlings will generate great sentiment. Six cults and two fillies by the legendary Reduce Choice, who died in 2019. There'll be a tinge of sadness as the hammer falls on the sale of the last yearling to be offered by the iconic stallion. The enormous success of Reduce Choice in 19 seasons at Arrowfield Stud vindicated the judgment of John Massara, who in 2000 brokered a deal to buy a major share in the horse from his Sri Lankan owner, Muzaffar Yassin. He believed the horse was the best credentialed son of Dane Hill to follow his own famous sire into the Arrowfield breeding barn. In March 2019, veterinary surgeons made the call to euthanise Reduce Choice when he developed a traumatic loss of mobility. In an official statement released by the stud, John Massara paid his champion the ultimate tribute when he said Arrowfield had been built on the back of Reduce Choice. John began his business life in the accountancy field, before opening his own stockbroking firm, all the time harbouring a burning ambition to enter the fiercely competitive thoroughbred breeding industry. He did this in 1985 when he established the Arrowfield Group. Eight years later, he became executive chairman of the stock exchange listed group which had previously traded as Arabs, Australian Racing and Breeding Stables. Arrowfield horses still race in the Arabs' colours. Around the time Reduce Choice was retired to stud, John Massara privatised the Arrowfield Group and became sole shareholder and chairman. It's a great delight to welcome John Massara to the podcast on a very wet Sunday morning. Thanks for joining us, John. Morning, John. How are you? Good, thanks, John. Thanks for your time. Pleasure. Well, there wasn't a dry eye in the house at Arrowfield when the great horse had to be put down, and I think it might be a similar situation at Riverside Stables in April when his final yearling comes into the ring. Yes, it'll be a bit like that when I start talking about him, as I'm doing now. I'm, I break out in goosebumps all over because yeah. uh, we can never repay that stallion for what he's done for us and for the industry, as, as a matter of fact. Mm. You know, uh, 178 stakes winners and uh, 39 Group 1 winners and of 60 Group 1 wins and mm. 17 Group 1 classic winners, and it goes on and on. Uh, 
and then through the ring, etc. Uh, all the millionaires he threw, and then all the champions he had, you know, mm. Lankan Rupee and Miss Finland, the Autumn Sun, and mm. Samantha Miss. It goes on and on, Johnny, and, and uh, you sit down and you think, well, how will we ever duplicate this? It'll, it, it may never happen again. Mm. But he was very, very special. Mm. You know, it's only 10 days ago we saw his 178th stakes winner come up and uh, the 15th since he died in 2019, and that was Miraval, who won the Group 3 Kembla Grange Classic. Yeah, I'm pleased to say that we, we own Miraval. We, we actually bought her as a yearling. Mm. We liked her very, very much. She was an extraordinarily good walker and uh, had a tremendous uh, physical structure and she had a lovely pedigree and... Uh, we couldn't help ourselves. It's not that we haven't got a lot of redoots no. mares. We thought one more won't, won't, won't harm us. Yeah, and uh, she repaid us the other day and she heads on now to the longer races later on. Arrowfield will again present more yearlings than any other vendor at the Easter sale. You'll have 48 or 49 lots. You've had a long and productive association with Inglis. Yeah, it's been a long, long time that we've been selling through Inglis. I don't know, 30 years or something, uh, maybe longer. Uh, and uh, in the last few years, we've been uh, their major customer, their major vendor, uh, as our broodmare band has grown. And with the success of a couple of the stallions, we've had, you know, very marketable products. So I think it, it, it's uh, it's worked out well for both of us. And uh, it's always a good draft that we try to take to Inglis's. And uh, this year is no exception, John. Arrowfield had hosted the Great Dane Hill on his many shuttle missions. And you were very familiar with his characteristics and his strong points. And you identified Reduce Choice as the right son of Dane Hill to follow in his footsteps. Well, Redoute's choice had everything that you could look for in a stallion. He had he came from a family which had produced successful stallions in the past. Uh, he was by Dane Hill, who I knew would become a, a dominant sire maker. Uh, I had already invested in Flying Spur and Dan Zero, mm. previous sons, believing that that would be the case. And uh, when Redoute's came along, he was a great physical. He was a, a, a he was. An unbelievably strong animal uh, would run through brick walls. You saw that mm. in the Caulfield Guineas and the Blue Diamond. The Blue Diamond being only his second run ever. Mm. Uh, oh no! When when we looked at him and followed him, it was a horse we had to have. Even though we had a surfeit of Danehill blood at Arrowfield, mm. we thought you can't have too much of a good thing. No. Of all his celebrated sons and daughters, and you've already mentioned a few of them. Did you have an absolute personal favourite? Look, uh, yes, I, I have to say that Miss Finland mm. was so good to us. She was such a great filly uh, and she won races from 1,000 metres to 2,500 metres in the space of 12 months. It was ridiculous. Yes. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm, I've got a very soft heart for Miss Finland and she's now a very good producer as well uh, and we've kept uh, all the daughters uh, and hopefully, you know, the legacy will continue. Mm. But in recent times, I've been extraordinarily uh, uh, impressed by the Autumn Sun. Mm. Uh, he was a little bit reminiscent of Miss Finland in that he was enormously versatile and very dominant, in, mm. you know, very dominant against his own age and, mm. uh, and a great looker. They all had the one thing in common, mind you. They're mm. all layback types, very good minds on them. Mm. They don't get overexcited before the race and uh, they conserve their energy for when the uh, the big strides are required. Mm. The best indication of Redoute's choice rise to superstardom were his service fees. You kicked off in 2000 at 33000 By 2007, he was 330000 And even in his last season, when he covered 45 mares, he was still commanding a fee of $137,000. That's true, Johnny. Um, but we always tested the market before establishing those uh, those fees and announcing them. Uh, we, we wanted to ensure that we had – he got an adequate book of high-quality mares. And, and so 
the market accepted those those numbers uh, and those fees, and I know that that's an all-time record, that 330000 And at the time, it, it was sort of, uh, uh, you know, it was a big talking point, even in the general press, that a horse could actually sell a nomination at that price. You know, mm. it was very, so people didn't believe it for some time. But he was he filled that year, and he generated an enormous amount of income, of which we were one of the participants, obviously. Mm. But that's when I say that we built the farm on reduced choice. I quite mean it. You know, a, a lot of the improvements and everything came from the revenue that he generated for us. You surprised many people in 2011 when you made the decision to send reduced choice to the Aga Khan's famous breeding farm in France, where he stood two seasons. Now, Somebody must have talked you into that. I didn't think you would ever let that horse out of your sight. Well, interestingly, uh, I am a, a great um, – I respect the Aga Khan and his operation greatly. And I was sitting in that stud uh, with his daughter, Princess Zara, mm. and we were talking about stallions and things, and she – showed an interest in Reduce Choice, and I said, well, I've never considered sending him across because he's too valuable and I don't want to take a risk and I don't want to be greedy. And uh, I remember her saying, well, we would send him some very good mares. And I thought, you know, if we could get some great mares of the Aga Khans to this horse, mm -hmm. he might leave a legacy in Europe as well. Uh, it was not really a major financial decision. It was more... Uh, leaving his mark elsewhere. This is an Australian horse that's going to leave his mark elsewhere. And so uh, if it had been anybody else but the Aga Khan, they're very conservative how they handle their horses and the numbers they serve. And we we agreed that we just do 100 mares each year. That's it. And that uh, they would send us some of their very best mares. And uh, and that did happen. He he. He struck a stakes for us to runners ratio from that exercise of about 10%, mm. which is slightly below what he did here. Uh, here, he has a lifetime stakes winners to runners ratio of 11.8, 11.9. Mm. And, and I've analysed why he wasn't as good there as he was here. And I've put it down to uh, the fact that the mares he got were very stout from very stout lines. The yeah. Ocarn breeds to win Oaks and Derbies, you know, that's his interest mm. in life. And and I think a little bit of his turn of foot, you know, that he could put into his horses. Mm. And But nevertheless, he still achieved the 10% stakes winners to runners ratio with his European crop. But it was a very interesting exercise. We sent our own groom with him who stayed right through the season with him and brought him home. Mm. And uh, they did a wonderful job and they did give him some of their best mares and uh, Europe knows a bit about Reduce Choice now, and there'll be some European horses emerge from his daughters, mm. and, he, you know, there will be a legacy there. Mm. You've had several of his sons at Arrowfield, and the current luminary, of course, is Schnitzel, who's now 18. He's been champion stallion for the last four seasons, and they're in keen demand, and they will be again this year. John, funny thing, the first time you looked at him from a stallion viewpoint, you were just a shade sceptical. Yes, I did see him at the Magic Million sale because he was one of those well-bred uh, uh, redoots, and I mm. thought I'll have a look and and see um, uh, whether he could be a stallion prospect. And he looked very small compared to a lot of the other ones that were there at the sales. Mm. And I, I thought, well, this fellow might be a little bit too small, um, but you, we must never forget Northern Dancer and these other horses. You know, some of the great stallions of the world were small. But anyway, we're used to seeing a sort of a bigger horse here. Happily for us, he has he grew, and he grew uh, through his two-year-old year and uh, I felt he was unlucky in some of his races as a two-year-old, even mm. though he showed enormous pace. And I felt confident that at three, he'd probably win a Group 1 race, and we moved in and bought a piece of him. Mm. And luckily for us, he did win the Oakley Plate, albeit in Sydney weather conditions, because it was a bog track there yeah. uh, at Caulfield. And we had Miss Finland running in the Blue, di uh, Blue Diamond on the day, mm. and we had this fellow running the Oakley Plate. Mm. She ran second, and he won. Mm. So uh, she didn't handle the very, very heavy as well. No. 
Another of his great siring sons was not a single doubt, who burst into the limelight again last October when classic legend won the Everest. It was a sad day when you had to retire, not a single doubt from service. What a wonderful job he did and continues to do. Yes, and I think he's going to prove, like uh, Raduch's choice, to be a very, very good sire of dams. Uh, I think you'll find he, he'll be a very good broodmare sire, and he started well already. Uh, he, he, it was a very sad day. He got a pulmonary situation. He got uh, his lungs had uh, a, a, a developing impairment mm. uh, and uh, he you, you only had to walk him 50 metres and he'd be breathing very heavily. And uh, mm. my star, my stallion manager said, John, we, we can't ask this horse to serve him here in mm. this condition. It, it, it'll kill him. Mm. And we got the vets in and had a good look and uh, we, we treated him as best we could, but there was nothing that we could do to give him to give him that good air that he needs, you know, and mm. so his breathing is is poor. We have kept him in the stallion yards along his barn mates, and we're not uh, doing we're not serving him, mm. but we are looking after him as if he was sort of going to be serving good. mares, good. and uh, we'll treat him with dignity all the way until the end. Mm. He, he's been a wonderful servant to the farm. You've already mentioned the autumn sun. I just wanted to add uh, a quote of yours at the time he went to stud. I think you said, the autumn sun will get a better start on Arrowfield than any stallion who has ever been retired to the property. Well, it's true. That's exactly what I intended to do, and I gave him every decent mare that we had that suited him genetically and otherwise. So he has had some wonderful mares. And by the way, we're really pleased with his foals, mm. and you'll see them as yearlings next year. So mm. I'm very much looking forward to that. Mm. John, the done deals are winning everywhere, and the buyers love them. Done deal, um, yes. He, you're going to see the best of him, Johnny, uh, from next year's yearlings onwards yep. because that's the, the crop that was born this year and I can say by having looked at the ones we have at Arrowfield, are mm. uh, a cut above anything we've had before because that came after his five Group 1 winners. People piled into him with their best mares, mm. and so he has got a crop coming to the yielding, yielding sales next year, which is extraordinarily good and very large. Uh, 200 mares he got that year. And um, and 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 they, they include some of the best mares in the country. Mm. I think the 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 ultimately that crop will uh, set him up mm. as one of the leading sires in this country. But he is doing very well in the meantime, and he's had a very good start in life. Mm. But let me tell you, those two hundred that are coming are something out of the box. Oh, good. Well, because of his early success, you move swiftly to acquire one of his sons, a dual Group 1 winner in Castel Vecchio. He won a Rose Hill Guineas and he won a Champagne Stakes, but I think that second placing in the Cox Plate gave him a huge profile. Very much so. I think he ended up being rated the fifth best three-year-old in the world after that on the international ratings, he, mm. he, on the top 100 horses, etc. Mm. Yeah, he is, uh, he is a horse that, uh, I mean, stunned us with his first couple of starts because the, the stallion, uh, Dundeal, isn't known for his early precocity, although oh. they've, they've all got a turn of foot and they can come on as late two-year-olds. But this bloke uh, was produced at Canterbury one night and came like a train from last. I, I couldn't believe the run. Mm. It subsequently ran in the Millennium, the English yeah. Millennium, and I couldn't believe that run either. And I thought, <laughs> my God, this guy's running against the grain. This is yeah. something pretty special here. Mm. And we followed him closely. Um, and we, we know the owner very well. And uh, I stayed very close to the owner for a long time. Mm. And I, we're, we're good friends anyway. But uh, I said, please don't forget me when the time comes to send this horse to stud. Mm. And they didn't. And uh, and so we've syndicated the horse, but um, he's exceptional. I think his Champagne Stakes win 
uh, as a two-year-old was the fastest, was done in the fastest time ever mm. over a mile at Randwick for a two-year-old. There's mm. never been a faster two-year-old mile run at Randwick. Mm. Uh, and then, of course, he came out and won the Rose Hill Guineas, and subsequent to that, the Cox Plate. And the Cox Plate was an extraordinary performance, mm. uh, ridden magnificently by C. Williams, mm. and uh, that put him on the world scene as a, a, a top-class three-year-old anywhere. Mm. And uh, we're proud to have had him. And look, we've uh, he served 140 odd mares year one, yeah. and uh, he's been well supported. Mm. Now, John, I know you've told the Dane Hill story many times over, but can I ask you to tell it just once more? The great horse was bred by the recently departed Prince Khalid Abdullah, who raced him in England and Ireland. He won four races. You had your heart set on a son of Danzig, and you actually contacted the prince through his racing manager, John Ferguson, to inquire about Dane Hill's availability. he just won a Group 1, hadn't he? Yeah. Yeah, he had won a Group 1, mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, and we had been trace- following him for some months before that because we did a deep study on, on Danzig and Nuriyev mm-hmm. and other sons of an older dancer, mm-hmm. and we settled on, on trying to get a, a son of Danzig mm-hmm. because his produce were very adept on grass, mm-hmm. And they were essentially sprinters, and that's very much the Australian scene. Mm. So we said if we're going to go into that northern dancer line, we should try and find a a son of Danzig. And he popped up in our studies as one that was beautifully bred but owned by a very uh, wealthy person who Mm. might want to sell it. Mm. And we said let's wait till he wins his group one. He'd won a group three, and uh, he won the Ladbroke Sprint Cup. Mm. And John Ferguson was not the the, – the uh, the racing manager of the prince, uh, Prince Gallard, he was a young agent. Mm. He subsequently became the chief executive of uh, Godolphin. Ah. The, but Grant Pritchard Gordon was the uh, manager of the uh, of, of of the prince's uh, racing stock, and so mm. we used John to contact Grant Pritchard Gordon, oh, and uh, that's that's how we approached the the prince. And and mm. in the process, uh, I had been told by Robert Sangster, who was a constant visitor to Australia and a, a good friend, uh, that I should go and meet the Schoolmore crowd in, in Ireland. They were sort of movers and shakers and uh, mm. they could be good people for me to know. And so I went over there and we talked about shuttling horses, etc. And during the course of the discussion, as I was about to sort of leave and we, we'd said we'd try and do something together on stadiums of mutual interest, uh, they said, are you looking at anything at the moment? And I wait up. In my mind, in a split second, should I tell them or should I not? I said, well, if I'm going to go into partnership with these people in a horse, yeah. surely I can trust them. And mm. I did. And so I said, yes, I'm looking at a horse called Dane Hill. They didn't much know who he was, mm. uh, although he'd won that race. He was at Danzig and they weren't highly regarded at that time. Mm. And so they said, oh, oh, we, 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 well, we'll have a look at that. And anyway, the next day they came back and said, look, if you're going to buy that horse, we're happy to go harvest with you. In fact, we can help you. We know people in that organisation. We can help you buy it, et cetera. Mm. And uh, I thought to myself, well, have I done the right thing? Have I done the wrong thing? But who knows? And uh, so we bought the horse where, you know, I had 50% and they bought 50%. They mm. syndicated their 50%. I kept my 50%. Mm. And so uh, the agreement was that the horse would shuttle between the two farms, Arafield and Coolmore and uh, verbally, uh, I had Dr. Percy Sykes with me, the great vet, and mm. I said to Percy, what do you know about this shuttling business? Because it was fairly new. And he said, look, <laughs> I've seen Bunker Hunt do a bit of it in New Zealand in the early yeah. days. Mm. I don't know a lot about it, John, but I reckon after three years of doing two seasons a year, probably wouldn't be a bad idea to review the thing and maybe give the horse a bit of a rest, you know. Mm. Mm. So uh, we moved uh, the horse went back, backwards and forwards for three years. He didn't do much in his first crop or two in, in England, mm. in, in Ireland, but he was fantastic here, as you know. He, mm. he came onto the scene with huge acclaim. Anyway, um, after three years, we said, look, you know, we, we did talk about having a, a stop. And and uh, they, Peter Orton in those days, who now manages Vinery, was my mm. manager at Arrowfield. And he said, look, John, the horse is handling the travel pretty pretty well. Oh, he's a layback horse. Mm. I think he can continue if they want to continue. I don't think it's a major 
issue at the moment. Mm. So we continued for another couple of years. We got to year five, yeah. and I said, look, he's now becoming one of the greatest stallions I think we've ever had down here. Yeah. So I said, you know, he's the, I, you know, he mightn't be doing that in England and Ireland and France, but he's certainly doing it in Australia. And I think we'll have another year and give him a rest in the place where he is more com- the most commercial. If it's in your country, well, he can stop in your country for a year or two. If it's my, our country, he can stop here. Mm. And there was an agreement w- with the management there, but nothing in writing. Yeah. Uh, and we got to year six, and that was completed. So he'd had 12 consecutive seasons, you know, six Northern Hemisphere, six Southern Hemisphere. Goodness me, yeah. Lot, that's a lot of, you know, serving of mares. And mm. I, I, so I, 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 they came to, to say that they wanted us, the horse to go back at the end of the Sixth Southern season. I said, sorry, as far as I'm concerned, I came to agreement with your management. <laughs> we have to give him, we have to give him a rest. Yeah. And they said, no, you don't. Yes, we do. Mm. As it turns out, John Magna and and myself were the two joint managers. So mm. no one really had control, even though I had more shares than they did because they'd mm. sold a few of theirs out. Yeah. Uh, but and. You know, time was going by. The flight was going to go back to, to Ireland. The horse wasn't being put on. Mm. And and one night, about two days before Christmas, I get a phone call from the late Jack Ingham, who was mm. a mate. And Jack said to me, John, you, you don't want to get into a fight with these blokes, you know. We, yeah. We're trying to promote Australia and that. Why don't you find a way through it, mate, you know, find a yeah. way through it. It's not going to kill the horse. I said, Jack, I don't know whether it's killing it or not, but all I can tell you is he's going to be something out of this world here mm. and I don't want to take the risk for their sake and our sake. Mm. Anyway, he did, I was, he was influential with me, you know, and he pushed me to do it and I thought the only way out is we'll have an auction. We'll yeah. have a Dutch auction, <laughs> properly organised. Yeah. I think a lot more of him than they do, mm. which I did mm. at the time. Because he came good later with him, uh, and uh, and I said I'll probably end up buying him anyway. So I, I begged, borrow, and stole. Uh, stealing is just an expression. I don't mean steal, but you know, no. I begged, borrow, and stole every cent I could. I went to my bank, I went to my mates, I went everywhere, mm. and put together sufficient money to be able to put a value of twenty three million on the horse. Mm. Which was a would have been a record for a stallion in this country at that at that stage, mm. but it was worth every cent of it, I thought. Mm. And they obviously had an open checkbook because they're far wealthier than I was at the time. So, and they're still far wealthier than I am today. Yeah. So, uh, the bidding we got to Lawrence Street to be the uh, man in the middle. Subsequently, he said to me, "It was for a fee." He said to me, "I'm a fool, you know." I, I should have I should have asked you for a percentage commission. I asked you for a straight <laughs> fee. He said I, I could have retired on the bloody commission. Yeah. Anyway, so uh, uh, so Puros Lawrence did a fantastic job, and in the end, we got the twenty three million dollars, and they get, they went one higher, mm. and uh, we ran out of puff because we had to disclose. Uh, what our maximum price was to Sir Lawrence uh, yeah. confidentially because yeah. he said, I don't want to be selling this horse to one of you and it doesn't get settled, you know. Mm. Uh, it's got I, – I must have a bank letter telling me what the money is that mm. you've got available. And uh, so anyway, they ended up with a horse which was not the, <laughs> the, intense, the intention of the, of the scheme that we, we developed, yeah. but uh, they did. And uh, – on the way back to my office, I was practically in tears, John, mm. and my directors of Arrowfield were with me, including Percy, and they said, oh, gosh, we're all cashed up now. You've got all that money in the bank you're going to have. Mm. Wow, we're in a very strong position. I said, hey, we're not bankers. We're breeders, mm. and we're giving away the holy grail. That's what we've done. Did you really? But yeah. Exactly. I was within a second of crying. I'm actually bursting into tears. I mean, I'm yeah. a grown man. Because I, 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 that was my pride and joy, that horse, and we had sort of made it with him from nowhere, started mm. scratch. The, he only got about 67, 70 mares in his first year in Australia because people didn't know the bloodline and didn't understand. And so a lot of those were ours, 30 or 40 of them were ours, mm. and we bred all those Group 1 winners, you know. Mm. Uh, so uh, many he, Group He was a group phenomenon. He, he nicked 
perfectly with the Australian mares yeah, and, yeah. and the winners just flowed. Five golden slippers. Oh, I don't know how many derbies and oaks. His cults were brilliant. His fillies yeah. were brilliant. Yep. It was only nine months ago that the great Galileo nudged past Dane Hill's world record number of Group 1 winners. Yeah, it's amazing. It is amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. And I'll tell you a little story. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you a little story. When we did buy Dane Hill from Prince Khaled Abdullah, who's a guy I admired enormously, mm-hmm. uh, he built an empire there, a, a breeding and racing empire. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he's, they, his people said, well, look, we'll send you the horse, but we won five lifetime breeding rides in the Northern Hemisphere. Mm-hmm. And we thought, oh, well, you know, you don't get a better breeder than him anyway. Mm-hmm. We'll give him the five-time five lifetime breeding rights. And it's from those – I believe it's from those five lifetime breeding rights that he bred Kind, who's the dam of Frankel. So out of that original deal, mm. Frankel was born. How amazing is that one? Mm. Incredible story. You know, many believe Dane Hill was the greatest single influence on the Australian breeding scene since Star Kingdom, but you go a bit further than that. Well, I had to give a speech to the International Federation of Horse Racing Authorities, their annual meeting in Paris a few years ago, and I decided to to talk about the uh, evolution of the breeding industry in Australia over the last 30 or 40 years because it's from 1985 on really, coincidentally, the year that Arafil was born, by the way, uh, that the industry hasn't looked back and it's kept developing. And uh, that's the year that Bob Hawke put us on a level playing field uh, with New Zealand uh, in terms of taxation deductions. In other words, you could write off your brood mares and stallions on the same basis that the Kiwis could. Hitherto, they that had a huge advantage, and therefore they were collecting the best mares and the best stallions. Mm. And as part of the story, I brought Dane Hill into this speech of mine. Mm. So I rang up the stud book and I said, "Is it possible to find out how many of our racing stock in this country at the moment uh, have Dane Hill in their first three remove removes?" Mm. And it turned out to be a figure of around fifty percent. So one in two racehorses, and that was a while ago. I can't remember. It might have been 10 years ago. Mm. Um, One in in two racehorses in this country at that time had Danehill blood in their first three removes. So that was amazing, and it's it's the most dominant uh, thing you could have. And, in fact, we became victims of our own success because now it's very difficult to breed a horse without having Danehill on both sides of the pedigree because – through sons and daughters and, you know, God's, God knows what, he's, he's, he's everywhere. Mm. John, we'll just pause for a moment for, for a quick break on the podcast. When we come back, I'd like to give our listeners an insight into your background and your journey through life. Back with John Massara after this. With a freakish rain event changing the profile of the Sydney Autumn Carnival, the championships won't get underway until the 10th of April. Good luck to the trainers who now have to fine-tune the work regimes of their horses to compensate for the unavoidable change of dates. Day one of the championships will be well worth waiting for, with Group 1 highlights, the star Doncaster, the TJ Smith, the Australian Derby and the English Sires Produce Stakes. The much-anticipated half-million-dollar New Haven Park Country Championship final will see the Bushies given their chance to strut their stuff on the big stage at Royal Randwick on day one. Let's hope Sydney turns on her best autumn weather for the championships now commencing on the 10th and continuing through the 17th and the 24th of April. Day two will feature the Longines Queen Elizabeth Stakes, the Swept Sydney Cup, the Australasian Oaks, the Coolmore Legacy, and the Polytrack Provincial Championship Final. The championships will wind up on the 24th with the Sweps All-Age Stakes and the Mowaton Shondon Champagne Stakes. Racing New South Wales and the Australian Turf Club proudly present the Championships 2021. 
I don't think it's widely known that your ancestors came from Crete in the Greek islands. Your branch of the family then moved on to Syria and to Lebanon before finally settling in Egypt where you were born, something you share with the famous actor Omar Sharif. (laughs) Now, you were raised in the ancient city of Alexandria, which was founded by Alexander the Great in 331 BC. You would have been about 10 when your family migrated to Australia in 1958, maybe 11. What are your memories of the city that Napoleon once saw fit to add to his conquests? Well, uh, I was only a kid uh, attending the British Boys' School in Alexandria before I was shipped to Australia. My family, some of my family were here already. Two of my father's brothers were here. But my father and mother stayed back for another three years before themselves migrating, and they sent me to Australia to uh, board with my Uncle Freddie and my Auntie Mimi Nassara. And uh, so over the period of the first three years in Australia, I saw my parents for one month only when I went back the second Christmas, not the first Christmas, but the second Christmas. Mm. Um, But it was a beautiful city. Uh, It was kind of one of the jewels of the the Middle Eastern area. Uh, I remember them showing off about the fact that Hollywood movies would get there before they got to any other – they'd open there before they opened in many other countries. Mm. There was a very big expat community of Greeks and French and English. It had been under British and French rule in the past. Mm. Their institutions were good, uh, and it was a lovely place to live. Uh, and uh, But, however, when Colonel Nasser took over in the coup and the king was dethroned, etc., um, they wanted to keep Egypt for the Egyptians, and fair enough, we understand that. And so it got very difficult as an expat, to, mm. even though we were, I was born there, uh, to um, stay. It mm. got a bit dangerous and the opportunities closed down for anybody that wasn't Egyptian. Mm. And so um, my parents shot me off in advance to make sure that I got a good education here mm. and followed three years later when they closed down their business, etc. Mm. And well, uh, that's the early part of uh, my story and I went, uh, you know, I've been in Australia ever since. So i I've been here 90% of my life virtually. Yeah. You were educated at the famous St Ignatius School and later at the Uni of New South Wales where you gained a Bachelor of Commerce degree. You emerged as a certified public accountant which led you to a job with Edwin V Nixon and Partners Chartered Accountants. So you were on your way. Correct. Funnily, in the final year of university, There was a subject called business finance in my course, Mm -hmm. which I took, and I came first in that subject. But the prize for that subject was donated or sponsored by Edward V. Nixon and Partners. Mm -hmm. It might have been 20 bucks. It was that small. It was tiny. Those days you got, you know, you earned 60 or $70 a week if you're lucky. So Edward V. Nixon came to the university as other major accounting firms would, to interview graduates-to-be from the commerce degree mm. with an accountancy uh, bent. Mm. And I was one of the interviewees. And when I won the prize, uh, they, they hunted me down when I won their prize. Mm. And they offered me a massive $200 more a year mm. than I would have been getting from any of the other firms. Mm. And so for the grand sum of $3,500 a year, I joined Edward V. Nixon and Partners, and it was a good firm, and it's now known as Arthur Young, so you may know it in its new yeah. name. Yeah. You later joined a stockbroking firm called Ralph King and Ewell, who, because of your ability to speak fluent French, sent you on an important job. Yes, that was a firm that was one of the five or six larger ones in Sydney at the time of the mining boom. Very active. I learned so much so quickly there. Uh, and they decided at one stage that they uh, w- would consider opening a branch in Europe to sell Australian stocks to mm. the Europeans. Mm. One of the competitors uh, had, a, had a, a branch in Europe 
and they thought that they should consider doing the same, and they sent me off to do a feasibility study, which I did as a very young man then. You know, I was only 22 or something. And uh, I did speak French because uh, that was our home language before we came to Australia. And when we came to Australia, mm. the old man said, that's it. We're only speaking English in this family. So, so that was it. Yeah, yeah. But in the meantime, uh, I'd kept my French. And so that was an advantage for me. Mm. And I was able to get around there in Geneva, Switzerland, and uh, look at – all the options for opening an office, which subsequently I came back and gave them a report, gave the partnership a report. Mm. And on the basis of that report, they decided some months later, yes, they would open a European office in Geneva. Mm. And I said to them, I've found a very good man to run it, who's an Australian, uh, who is a financial director of a big public company, American public company running their branch in uh, Europe. Mm. And they said, no, you're going to open it. You're going to run it. You can hire him as your number two, but you must run it. <laughs> so so I didn't really uh, bank on that when I did this job. I, I was quite happy to stay here, but they sent me off and I couldn't resist the uh, opportunity. And I went over there, opened the office and worked there for a couple of years. And then uh, the office was taken over by the fellow that I identified as being a, mm. a good guy to run the place. So I came back to Australia after that. And uh, bought a seat on the stock exchange, mm-hmm. and uh, ultimately opened my own firm, JM Masara and Co. And uh, I did that for twenty years, Johnny, before the bug finally got a very good hold over me. Well, when it was time to move into the racing and breeding world, there were no half measures. You <laughs> bought a race filly who'd already won a VRC Oaks, and you negotiated vigorously with her Queensland owner, John Needham. Well, he was a character, Johnny, John Needham. Mm. Uh, he, I went over at the advice of Bart Cummings, who was assisting me at the time. He said, I think we can improve this filly to win, a, you know, a Doncaster or a Caulfield Cup. Uh, you ought to try and buy her and then you'll be able to breed from her. Mm. And she'll be an elite broodmare for you long term. And, you know, I was, you know, wet behind the ears and, of course, you know, he was the master, and uh, I went and tried to buy her. And I think he had, it was a good concept he had too, mm. and she was a great filly. And I got to the airport at the Gold Coast, and that's where we were going to sit down in a room there and negotiate. Mm. And he said, I said, I offer you 200000 And he said, John, I want two fifty. Mm. And I said, mate, that's too much for me. He said, well, why don't we toss for, the, for it? Toss for it. <laughs> I said, mate, there's no way I'm tossing for 50 grand. No. I can tell you that. So we settled on the midpoint of 225. I remember it as clear as, as if it was today. Mm. And, uh, and uh, I took the filly and handed her over to Bart, and he won the Theo Mark Stakes and he won the Queen of the Turf. Mm. But we didn't reach the heights that we thought we might have reached. Mm. Subsequently, I ran into – Scomill's trainer, Roy Dawson, mm. years afterwards. And he said, mate, you should have left her with me. He said, there was a trick to that, Philly. Yeah. And I knew the trick. Anyway, you wanted to move her. I said, I had to move her. It was, the, it was Bart's idea and, uh, you know, that was the deal. Mm. But uh, funny story. When you'd accumulated a few more mares after Scomill, you decided to buy a little property in the Hunter Valley where you could look after them and uh, you secured a small stud called Middlebrook Park, and it wasn't long before you had a couple of stallions of your own, and I can remember seeing these two horses uh, at your place in the mid-'80s. Rancher was one of them, who'd been a brilliant two-year-old, and Prago, who did a pretty fair job. Well, Johnny, you've got a very good memory, I have to say. You're 100% correct on that, and... uh... And, uh, look, that was the start. Uh, with what I know now, I might have done things differently and we're always learning in this business and that's part of the attraction of the business. You can never really quite conquer it. You're always uh, – there's always something new. And um, But, look, I cut my teeth on those two stallions. I syndicated them. Uh, I got to know a lot of other people in the industry and they were moderately successful. Uh, they weren't superstars. But it got me started. One of your most satisfying moments was to watch a filly win the AJC Oaks in 1983. 
a filly you'd actually picked as a foal out of a paddock in New Zealand. You're quite right. Starzan was her name. Yeah. Zamazan out of Balotta. And uh, I had seen her as a foal while I was, while I was in New Zealand with uh, a friend of mine who, Norm Teague, the vet, who used to be the Ingham vet, mm. and he'd come across to give me a hand uh, and look at uh, a, a three-year-old filly that was an offer, Tartan, T-A-R-T-A-N, a Taipan filly, that we thought we might be able to buy reasonably. She was well-bred, mm. and we were going to give it a Theo Green to train. And uh, and so we went over, and during the physical inspection, Norm Teague turned to me and said, mate, this filly has got sacroiliac problems in the back. And he said, look, it's fixable, but it's going to take time. It's not what we thought we were coming to buy. We thought we were buying a very sound filly that had just run very well in a trial over there. Uh, and so we were walking back. They were very kind to buy to to, take, to invite us to lunch, and we were walking back towards the homestead there to have lunch. And there was a pack of um, fillies, foals, mm. running around, and there was a chestnut foal that took my eye. Mm. And I asked the uh, breeder, the owner of the farm, could you tell me what that chestnut's by? He said, "Oh, Zamazan, mm. the French stallion by Exbury," and. What about the mayor? Bellotto was a stakes-winning mayor in New Zealand, very good uh, mayor. And uh, and so I said, oh, that's interesting. Right. So we sat down to lunch and I said, now, look, my vet tells me that Tartan has an issue with the back, which means she'll have some time off and who knows whether she comes back as good as we thought she might be. So I won't buy her on her own, but if you'll let me have the other one with her, <laughs> Wheeling and dealing even back then. Oh, yes. That's the old <laughs> stockbroking uh, background. Yeah. I, said, I said, if you if you throw the filly in the foal, yeah. I'll pay you more, obviously more money because we've got to add value for the foal, mm. but I'll take the two of them. Otherwise, I'm afraid I'll have to go home empty-handed. Yeah. And he said, but that's my wife's favourite filly. The, all the old stories came out. Yeah. I said, I, I know, I know. But, you know, you're a breeder and you're a seller of horses and I'm offering you a good price. I'll pay you the original price on the one you were trying to sell, mm. and I'll pay you X for the for the other filly. Yeah. And anyway, he said, "Okay, yes, all right, all right, all right, we'll do it." So we did buy the two. Tartan went on to win, I think, a race in Sydney, and I think Darren Beedmer might have ridden it that day because mm. he was just at the start of his uh, apprenticeship with uh, Theo. And uh, and I gave Theo the other one, but I said, "Theo, you're not going to see her for six or twelve months." We'll do a New Zealand prep on this one. We'll leave her alone as until she's about two and a half years old, and then we'll send it to you. And then you can try to win something like an Oaks. And uh, she ended up winning the Princess Handicap, which is the Adrian Knox now, mm. and she won the, the the Oaks on the following Wednesday. And that was that gave me the, the biggest thrill. Mm. And it's still a very important yeah. uh, day in my life where we won a group one at Royal Randwick with a filly we picked out of a paddock. It was a lovely, it was a, you know, it was a, it was a great thrill. Very and great an thrill. Oaks, the, the most romantic race in the world, anywhere in the world, the Oaks. Yeah, and my, I'll tell you what I did that afternoon. Mm. I shut the office down and I said, everybody, the whole staff's coming out there. I reckon we're a chance in the Oaks. We've won the Princess. I reckon we can, she's yeah. in an upward cycle. I reckon we can win the Oaks. And it was one of the strongest Oaks, Johnny, mm. that there's ever been. You had the second place get homemade, the second place getter in the Victorian Oaks. You had the winner of the Victorian Derby that year was a filly. Mm. I can't remember her name now. But it was ridden with high-quality fillies. And yet you had this little filly from nowhere, mm. good pedigree, that had just won, I think, maybe one race before the Princess Handicap and came, went on to win the Princess. And as soon as she got to those longer distances, wow, she loved it and uh, and won the Oaks by about a long neck. Gary Willett riding, the New Zealand jockey. Your administrative posts over the years have been far too numerous to cover in one interview. 2011 to 2016, you were racing New South Wales chairman. Now, in that period, prize money escalated and continues to do so. Integrity, governance, jockey and animal welfare was upgraded and strengthened. The championships were launched and there was heavy investment in modernisation 
and infrastructure, including the upgrading of 23 racecourses. A busy five years. It was, it was, uh, Johnny. And, of course, you've got to understand that it's never one person. These things are all made by teams. The same applies to Arrowfield. I am just happened to be the leader at the time, uh, and we had a very good team at Racing New South Wales. We had an outstanding board and an outstanding chief executive, Peter Blandis. Yeah. And so as a team, we were able to set an agenda and deliver it, and that's what we did over the ensuing five years. And I'm, I'm very proud of those five years, um, and uh, I felt I put something back in the game that's given me so much joy. And, uh, of course, it's gone on and on since then. Now, before I get on to the next question, you mentioned that um, the year Starzan won the AJC Oaks. Also in the field was a filly who'd won the Victorian Oaks. Was that filly called Rom Stiletto? Rom Stiletto. Yep, you got it. Rom Stiletto and Homemade who ran second. Yeah. Yeah. And the strong New Zealand Oaks. Derby winner, you mm. know. <laughs> so, now, so, you were yeah. the inaugural chairman of the ARB the Australian Racing Board, which is simply a forum for the states. Now, for the first time, there was a concerted effort to get a harmonious balance on sensitive issues between Australia's racing states. And the one issue you pursued like a dog with an old shoe was the traceability of former racehorses. Absolutely, Johnny. And that was an issue that would would bring me to uh, a position of uh, being an adversary of the rest of the breeding industry. They hated me for uh, uh, bringing forth the concept of traceability. And the concept of traceability, Johnny, is is a concept of shepherding. A shepherd must know where his flock is if he's going to protect them. The same applies with horses. If we don't know where our entire herd is, then there's no way we can protect them from harm. And so we took the view at Racing New South Wales and Racing Australia that, because it was a national concept, that we must be able to trace where every racehorse ends up. And if he shifts from one farm to another, then there's a need to advise the Australian Racing Board or Racing Australia, as it's now known. And if he and and uh, if he changes ownership, that needs to advise to be advised as well. And this way, we would have a database of where every one of our herd is, and we could then move about trying to ensure that they have a, a decent life. Uh, and uh, they're taken care of, and this is the animal welfare story. Mm. Now, without that, all the other things you want to do to help aren't going to work because you won't know where everything is. And uh, and when we announced that, well, World War, World War Three mm. fell on my head. Yeah. The breeders all got together in every state of Australia and signed letters to have me sacked as the chairman of uh, Racing Australia. Mm and to have me sacked as a New South Wales chairman as well, saying that I was going to intrude in their business and it was going to be conflicts of interest. And I couldn't understand any of that. So we we just we kept going and carried on and brought it in as law. Mm. And, of course, now it's used by the breeding industry as a showpiece of how uh, to ensure that animal welfare works. When we got the attack from the ABC, you might remember that uh, 7.30 report which had a go at, at the racing yeah. industry, uh, et cetera. Well, uh, the defence of the racing industry was, but hang on a minute, of the breeding industry was, hang on a minute, we've got this traceability system down to a fine art yeah. and therefore we can protect our herd. So how funny it is that the very thing that, turn them all against me, is the very thing that might have saved their skins at this time. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, that's a very sad – that's a sad part mm. of my history in administration is when all my colleagues and cohorts and uh, that I'd worked with and uh, who had helped me and who I'd helped mm. along the years um, turned because they didn't like the idea of the intrusion that might be caused by this issue of uh, traceability. Yeah. You know, it's nobody's business where my horses are and who's got them, et cetera, et cetera, is the view they took. 
Well, it had a happy ending. John, we're running out of time, but just very quickly, you were paid an immense compliment in 2018 when you were commissioned by Winston Peters, the Minister for Racing in the New Zealand Government, to undertake a comprehensive review of the entire New Zealand racing industry. You delivered an 82-page report which contained 17 key recommendations to revitalise their industry. Now, it resulted eventually in new legislation being passed by the New Zealand Parliament last year, which has triggered wide-ranging reform. Satisfying? Very satisfying. Johnny, uh, I must say, I got a shock when I received the phone call uh, from the minister, from the minister who's the deputy, I mean, deputy prime minister, he was at the same time as being the racing minister, yeah. to ask me whether I'd undertake it. And uh, I said, of course I'll undertake it. It's, uh, we're all in the one sport and uh, you're our brothers in New Zealand. Of course I'll undertake it. Mm. And if I could help, I will. And I devoted a good six months to it. Mm. Um, and uh, really uh, brought in two guys, uh, John Rouse, who had been a chief executive of the ATC or ran, uh, the AJC at the time, uh, to help me, and uh, Darrell Lowenthal, who had been a very senior public servant and now is a consultant to Racing New South Wales. Those two men uh, and I were the team that went forward, and uh, we did our research and we produced this report, and I'm very confident that if they make all the changes that I recommended, and they haven't made them all yet, but they've made a number of them, mm. uh, that they can turn that New Zealand industry around. Let's use the few minutes we have left to pay tribute to your wonderful wife, Christine, who's been beside you in every venture you've undertaken and has somehow found the time to raise four children who are now very busy and very successful in their chosen fields. Paul, of course, elected to train racehorses and has done a very good job. Yes, I'm very lucky to have a, a girl like Christine. The first day I saw her, I walked out and told my mate that uh, was on the double date with me. I said, that's the girl I'll be marrying. <laughs> that was the night of the day that I saw her, the same day. Anyway, I did. Only three months later. It didn't take long. I, I, <laughs> <laughs> when you're on a good thing, stick to it. So I did marry her, and she was only 21, 22 at the time we got married. Mm. And we've been married, I think it'll be 49 years in January. Yeah. Uh, but she's been by my side. She hasn't always been as enthusiastic as she is now. Mm. And there's a trick to it. The minute her son became a trainer, she developed this new love of racing that I'd been struggling to get, to get her to develop in the previous years. But she won't miss any of his runners, mm. and she follows it like anything now that yeah. uh, her son's a trainer. So isn't that funny? But she's been wonderful, and she did a lot of the work with those kids while I was out and about trying mm. to build the business up. Louise went on to become a doctor. Michael yeah. inherited your interest in the financial world. And Suzanne, married name Grey, has made her mark in media as a yep. presenter and a producer, and part of her involvement has been with the Nine Network. Correct. All correct, and I'm very proud of them, and they're all good at what they do, but they're all good humans. I mean, that's the most important thing. They're decent people, and uh, they'll make their contribution. And they're not all interested in racing, Johnny. Uh, mm. The two boys are. Mm. Uh, the two girls don't mind coming out to the races occasionally, but the two boys are the ones that are interested, both Michael and Paul. Mm. And there are nine grandchildren involved in all of this. Yep. And uh, one of them is called Johnny, Johnny Masara. Yeah. And he thinks he's the chosen one because he was given the name Johnny. He asked me the other day, <laughs> yeah. does that mean that I'll be running the joint? I said, no, it doesn't mean that. <laughs> <laughs> is that how he worded it? Yeah. <laughs> oh, they're funny. They're funny kids, those kids, yeah. So, well, uh, as you approach your mid-70s, there's still a lot to do and an amazing six decades of achievement to look back on. Your introduction to Australia wasn't a pleasant one, was it, when the aircraft in which you were travelling from Alexandria was grounded at Darwin Airport because a flock of seagulls had fouled one of the engines. It was an ordinary start, but it worked out okay, didn't it? Yep. 
we had to stay there overnight. And as an 11-year-old, they put me in a motel room and I thought, they're going to leave without me. I better stay awake and keep, keep my one eye open. They're going to leave without me. Anyway, somehow yeah. or other, I got the knock on the door from the air hostess. Come on, we're going. So, But I had a night on my own there in Darwin. A lonely night. Yep. Now, John, one final question. Could you, if required, still conduct a conversation in reasonably fluent French? Yes, of course. Of course, and I, that's been very useful because I do go to Paris occasionally to the races, etc., mm. and it's given me a bit of an advantage there because I can talk to these uh, Frenchmen in their own language and they get quite a shock, you know. Yeah. So the ones that haven't met me before get quite a shock when I break out into French. So that's <laughs> it, yeah. John, thanks for your time on a Sunday morning, a very wet Sunday in Sydney. And it's been a, a delight and a pleasure. Good luck and uh, you better take three or four hankies along to the Riverside Stables when the final draft by the great Reduce Choice go under the hammer. Yeah, I'm not – I'm funnily, Johnny, I'm not looking forward to it. But anyway, it has to be done. It will be done. Thanks for being with us, John Massara, on a podcast produced by Supernova Sound. <laughs>